And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three, four. Welcome to House of Strauss Industry Talk. We are joined, as always, by the great Ryan Glassfiegel of the New York Post. How you doing, Ryan? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I think we got a good one. I think we got some topics. I didn't know over the weekend, Ryan, if some topics would uh, percolate, as they say. Uh, but we've they got always some... seem to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know what it is. The weekend, uh, something about it, by Monday, it's generating content. It's just, it's just what happens. And it's very, very NBA heavy. I think we are in the NBA heavy part of the slate. And I am ecstatic, Ryan. You know why I'm ecstatic? It's because I wrote about Kyrie Irving, and he scored 60 goddamn points. That's why I'm happy. <laughs> he did. Um and he probably could have scored like 80 if he wanted to. <laughs> well, that is the the crux of it. I I wrote today, wrote today about how uh he's got a little bit of Bartleby the Scrivener. If any of you have read that in high school or otherwise. The uh excellent Scrivener working for a lawyer who just one day prefers not to and he drives he drives the uh, narrator of that story mad because there's just something about a very competent person who decides to withhold his talents seemingly arbitrarily, somewhat implacably, that drives people insane. So it's not about Kyrie, uh, this particular story. Uh, I think it's a lot about just how people react to him, at least from my perspective. And from what I have seen, Michael Wilbon was the loudest in this course of people. But a lot of people at ESPN, Ryan, are very angry outwardly at Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving, as Stephen A. Smith calls him to my amusement, um, because, as many of you know, he is refusing to get the vaccine, and Eric Adams, mayor of New York City, is refusing to drop their bizarre rules that allow him to attend games but not play in the games and this is just a standoff and now it's getting even more attention now that he scored 60 points what do you think about it it's really the last vestige of the covid war is it not mm. like every I every hope. other um well no the masks on planes are the last vestige although the senate today which i didn't even know they could do voted to repeal it and so now if the house does then it becomes kind of on biden to repeal it or not but um it essentially i mean the covid wars have almost entirely receded in the last couple weeks like kind of out of nowhere yeah and so it's almost quaint that this is still a topic and it hasn't gotten like swept away by the repealing of most of the mandates combined with the Russia-Ukraine situation. Yeah, that swept a lot of it away narratively. And I think what swept it away politically, and uh, I was reading it's reflected in the votes on rescinding it in the airports is just the internal polling is terrible. I mean, there's one thing. It's one thing to look at Twitter and see a lot of journalists who are for permanent lockdown. Um, but the, uh, the preference cascade is against that. A lot of people want normalcy and you can browbeat them. You can badger them. You can say, uh, nearly a million dead. You can do all the things, but I think there is, there is a majority of people at this point who do not want to live this way. And you can say, you can mock anybody that says it's tyranny or authoritarianism. Look, 
people don't want the TSAification of all facets of life. They don't want it. And beyond that, it seems like they've been sold a lot of narratives that haven't come to fruition. Now, bringing it back to Kyrie. And I also want to just, uh, for those listening, do a little PTI scroll of stuff we will discuss. You know, one of the things we will discuss later on is the uh, Anthony Slater versus Draymond Green uh, tete-a-tete. So if you're, if you're into that, we can eventually move on from the COVID and get there and take all your questions. But to bring it back to Kyrie, I think what's a little frustrating about watching it, as I wrote, is that it becomes about him and it just becomes this focus. And then many in media kept using the same phrase. I mean, it's remarkable. I'm not straw manning it. But if you search Kyrie Irving and victim, you'll see many a media person saying that. Wait, he's is not he, a do victim. they think he is a victim? No, it's that they're arguing <laughs> no. that he's not a victim. You know, but nobody is really. You don't see too much arguing that he is a victim. Uh, they say free Kyrie. That's what LeBron James said. But it's this weird straw man of. He's not a victim. He's not a victim. He's and not claiming to be one either. He isn't even no. like complaining about it. It's no, not kind of really. fascinating. Not really. He's just Bartleby in it. Bartleby didn't say he was a victim. He just kept saying he prefers not to. And it's this weird straw man where when the system's rules don't make sense, instead of being journalists and questioning the system's rules, they just try to stigmatize anybody who's bringing those nonsensical rules into stark relief. And these rules make no sense. There's no defense for why uh, you can go to a game maskless, unvaccinated, and not play in that game. And why somebody as a visitor can come and play against you, but you can't play in it, but you can play in the practice facility. Uh, It just, this is transparently completely absurd. And yeah, other people are impacted way more than Kyrie. New York City is fired, I guess, over 1,400 people. Who didn't want the yeah, vaccine. and that was on Adams's watch, and it was just three weeks ago, right before every city in America just decided that we're done with this stuff. Yeah. Uh, we got a little question from somebody on, can others hear anything? Uh, hey, start finger mashing some emojis uh, if you can hear anything. I think we're audible. Okay, we got the thumbs up I button. can hear you. Okay, thank God. Thank God. Um, but I think it's this, this broader issue I have with a lot of uh, journalism in the Twitter era where it's less about skepticism. Indeed, it's about stigmatizing skepticism as just asking questions. It's not about looking at the issue from the other side. It's just about hammering the idea that you need to get with the program or you're bad and not looking at whether politicians are screwing up, whether the people running New York City are screwing up, but making it a referendum on Kyrie Irving's personality, which, to be sure, leaves a lot to be desired. And I think this is why it's good to have a substack and it's good to have these conversations, Ryan. It's not this binary thing of Kyrie Irving is a hero or a victim. Kyrie Irving is a bit of a jerk, and that's maybe what has allowed him to reveal the absurdity of this. I think I said it's kind of like how fools rush in where angels fear to tread, that assholes uh, (laughs) probe uh, inconsistencies that angels would fear to. There's something about his weird personality that has just shined a light on on this madness. And I'm not saying that he's a hero for doing so, but it clearly seems to be happening. Well, I would say that in a very weird way, I admire him because he's actually cost himself a lot of money with his principled stand 
and has been unwavering in the face of the loss of, I think it's got to be tens of millions of dollars at this point. And so, um, like, I actually, I, like, I'm double vaxxed. I got the booster. I rushed to get it the first time. I believe that the vaccine prevents its recipients um, from dire consequences of COVID. But I don't believe that it inoculates people from spreading it, which is what people like Michael Wilbon must believe in order to get as angry at him as they do. I don't even think they believe that anymore. I think they. I think he does. I think he believes that as somebody who had like heart issues and is older and is therefore in this like vulnerable kind of um, grouping in society, he believes that people like Irving who don't get the vaccine are endangering his life and others like his. That's what I think. He might well believe that. And the other frustration point, though, on this, and it goes back again to a media dereliction, there is a legitimate civil liberties conversation to be had here. Yes, I know that it's stigmatized within our orbit for whatever reason, but I want to know what what are our standards for it? One could say one could say, hey, when a disease has killed hundreds of thousands of people at that point, at that point, you got to take the vaccine. That's the deal. Obviously, there is a point at which society will make you take a vaccine and it doesn't matter whatever our precious little rules are because people will be so scared. And if the vaccine is effective enough and the disease is viral enough and if it's deadly enough, you're going to be forced to do it. But by what mechanism? At what point do we say that you need to do that? That seems to be a very important question that's not answered because on an individual level, if, as it appears, Kyrie Irving has already had COVID and he's 29 years old and he's in such great shape that he's scoring 60 points. I'm sorry, but he doesn't need this on an individual level. This is not medicine for him. So it doesn't seem like we're demonstrating the why of this. It just seems like we're trying to browbeat uh, him and anybody like him who refuses. And the silliest part about it all when it comes to New York City is it's according to no no benchmark. It's according to no standard they're trying to reach. So it, it's just frustrating how people uh, often in charge and the people who are trying to reify the arguments of people in charge are just insisting upon their authority and not actually explaining why what they want actually needs to happen. Yeah, no, we agree with each other. I'm just trying to give you my... If I've got trying to put myself... Uh, in Wilbon's head of why he would possibly be so upset. And that's what I think it is. And, you know, what's even sillier is that it's spreading to baseball. Like the Mets and Yankees are going to be bound by the same policy. Apparently Aaron judge was asked if he was vaccinated and he talked about just trying to focus (laughs) on the first game of spring training, which, you know, my, my colleague, Jeremy Layton, one of my editors pointed out, it's like, that's the dumbest and worst answer he could give because if he gives that answer, everyone just assumes he's unvaccinated anyway. So why not just say that? Um, but yeah. it, it's like well, it's not it's a really, lot of media that, attention that, that, in that. That's, that's it's not, hey, there's not a lot of 
not a lot of media attention in that town or on that team. So I'm sure it would. No, no. It's see the the Irving thing is a big national issue because basketball is a national sport. But like when we write about um like the like Irving and vaccine stuff in the New York Post, it's you know it gets met with like a collective yawn. But if like Aaron Judge and I I don't want to like rumor spread, but like there was if you search Twitter, there's a star pitcher on the Mets who people suspect might not be vaccinated. If those two um, are missing games, it is going to be an enormous story in New York and people nationally might not really care. Yeah. Baseball in New York really matters, especially the Yankees. And I don't think this is a fight that Eric Adams necessarily wants to have. If I'm a New York voter, kind of in the way that people didn't want Trump anymore because it was always another news cycle and he's always fighting or feuding with somebody. Yeah, maybe you get some points for standing up to Kyrie Irving. But if this just keeps continuing and it's holding up the sports and it doesn't seem like it's to any particular end, uh, I think it's it's already tiresome. Let's take some questions. I think he should just give these 1,400 people their jobs back and then let Kyrie, Aaron Judge, and unnamed Mets star pitcher play their games yeah that would be the simplest solution and you literally wouldn't even have to do anything um but let's take some questions you know i i don't know if new callers yeah new callers i don't know if i want to take a question from donald just because i'll do it but there's a lack of trust there's no avi it could be a baba buoy situation ryan but i'll I'll do it we'll put donald on and what if it was wilbon calling to just oh i hope i hope (laughs) donald are you on are you on donald See the suspicion. The susp- okay, we're going to give it a five count. Five count to the Donald. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, put Ken on. Ken, whose Abby is a remote control. Ken, you are on. Ken, Ken. Maybe okay. we are getting catfished. I think so. Ken, you are muted. I have faith in Nick. Nick is next in the queue if we want to put Nick on there. So, oh, there's oh, Ken. Okay. There, Ken. Hey guys, thanks for taking the call. How are you doing tonight? Fantastic. Doing well. What's on your mind? All right. Hey, so game theory with Bomani Jones debuted on Sunday. I don't know if y'all caught it, but I had a couple thoughts on it. What are I your mean, thoughts? Yeah, the thoughts it, to kind of set things up. Uh, I have not seen it, and Ryan has. So, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so like in a, in a lot of them, you know, he opens with the monologue, basic jokes about the week in sports and whatnot, a couple skits. You could tell they were kind of going for like a Chappelle vibe, making fun of how white Duke is, how short their shorts are, that sort of thing. And it got me thinking like, look, this guy's brilliant. Whenever I hear him on like a podcast or the radio, like he can break down a situation involving cultural issues, sports like nobody else. Uh, there's basically like an entire subset of ESPN folks that adopt his positions over the last few years and we'll see where the show goes you should never count it out after one episode all that uh but on tv man he just doesn't translate to me for whatever reason and it kind of reminds me how after like the nba countdown show the grantland nba show his hbo show simmons realized like hey maybe i suck at tv let me lean into podcasts sell my company for like freaking 200 million the difference between this and that is like the sites that Simmons had openly mocking his show with the low ratings, Deadspin, an awful announcement, all those, like Chris Collinsworth put him on blast. It was like a weekly embarrassment for HBO. Like it was like John from Cincinnati or something. 
And that's just not going to happen to Bomani. So I'm thinking, actually, maybe this might be beneficial to him. And he, and over time, the show can kind of grow into itself and eventually succeed. And, you know, I'll hang up and hear y'all's thoughts on this. You want me to take this, Ethan? Yeah, I haven't. Well, A, I haven't watched it. And B, I definitely want Bomani to come onto the podcast before I, uh, you, you know, before I start criticizing extemporaneously. But Ryan, you were saying. Um. Okay, so... I think that those were a lot of good points by Nick. And I was one of the people when I was at the big lead who was covering um, the struggles of Simmons's any given Wednesday. Um, So taking it piece by piece, I think I agree with you that those monologues are not playing to his strength. He was reading off of a teleprompter. And I think his biggest strength is when he's talking with like, long extemporaneous thoughts on uh, a digital platform. And I, I don't, the the monologue just didn't resonate with me. Um, He he opened the show by saying that he was wearing a $9,000 suit, which, um, you know, that's two months or so after tax pay for me. (laughs) And it didn't make me, um, want to like you know root for him as an underdog the the simmons so um outkick did cover this my old um colleague bobby barack noted that the show um lost 77 percent of the lead-in audience from john oliver in a half an hour um and so it was covered more savagely there than simmons was anywhere even by chris collinsworth um, I thought that the interview with Stephen A. Smith was pretty good. Um, Stephen A. talked about how he was like on the basketball team and on the student paper at the same time, and how he wrote a column or something ripping the coach, which was like you know very Stephen A. story, maybe apocryphal, maybe not, but mm. very Stephen A. Uh. I don't know how I, I have no idea how long um, this show will get or not because HBO is kind of in flux. It's switching hands from AT&T to Discover Warner Media, the biggest owner, the biggest shareholder of Discovery, John Malone, who I've talked about before, has gone on record about how he's basically going to dismantle CNN and make it centrist. And so I don't know how much this show would appeal to him if it's on his radar at all. I would like to see this show get um, some time to find itself. But if Bomani's going to be like reading a script off a teleprompter, he should go. If this show is going to go down, it should go down with him speaking extemporaneously, not reading a script written by yeah. um, a combination of him and Tommy Craggs. Yeah, and uh, I have not seen it, but I do know that's Bomani's strength is extemporaneous riffing. And I also think he's been typecast in a way, perhaps because of the feuds with Clay Travis, that I think he has a little more unorthodox in him than the typecasting, where Clay Travis was calling him PC Bromani. I think the caller's uh, point about how uh, many at ESPN have adopted the views was a very interesting point because Definitely. I think Bomani's uh, position on a lot of topics was more of an outsider opinion uh, pre-Great Awakening, right? 
Um, and you could say something similar about how. And Tanahashi, by the way, he yeah. hasn't gotten further left. He has stayed exactly where he is. Yeah. And I think that like some of his positions seem more um, sane than they might have used to because so many of his other colleagues have got. And by the way, I like Romani. I've spoken with him several times. Um, I like, I hope that if he hears this, he doesn't think that like my criticism of the show was unfair. If he called me, I would say the same thing. But um, I, I agree with basically everything that Nick said. I would love to talk with him about it too, because that, that process of being the outsider to having more people adopt your opinions, uh, that's just a, that's an unusual process to go through. And I do think that because sometimes he does provoke, he does provoke white people. I didn't see the Duke thing, but he wears the shirt that says the Caucasians that look like the Cleveland Indian shirt. There's this reaction of, well, this is who this guy is. And he's like everything else that I hate. And I think he has a lot more opinions, a lot more nuance. And like you, I would like to see him find a sea legs. I certainly would like to hear his take on things more than John Oliver, as successful as that show is. So I'll be watching. I'll be checking it out. Um, I want to take another question from Nick. I presume it's probably on the Kyrie thing, but uh, that, that will be our ability to close out that topic. And then we will shift to player versus media scuttlebutt. And in Donald back in the queue. Yeah, maybe we'll check out Donald again. We'll, we'll we'll see. Okay. Nick, you are the next caller, Nick. Nick. Hey, Nick. how's it going? Hey. Hi. Um, yeah, first is a, uh, a New Yorker. Um, like, I don't want this to happen out, um, out of, like, uh, being a Mets fan. and uh, it, But it would be kind of spectacular if they tried to keep this up with the baseball teams. Mm. Uh, it, it would be like, so <laughs> fascinating. Um how quickly Eric Adams would lose his goodwill if Aaron Judge can't play at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> yeah, like it would just be like on a whole different level. Um, but yeah, like the thing that kind of um, is someone who like got vaxxed the second I could, um, who got my parents vaxxed the second I could, um, who, and to be totally honest, has found most of the articulated justifications people have given for not getting it to I wacky like yeah um the thing that frustrates me is that there it's totally plausible in the future that we will have another pandemic in which case like we will be totally fucked if everyone doesn't get it yeah and what I I just I when I actually this wasn't a great test run for that (laughs) yeah no and part of what frustrates me about the I find to be like just like the absurdist feeder policies, like, I mean, especially this with Kyrie right now, but also, like, the, um, you have to wear a mask at a restaurant unless you uh, <laughs> are eating. And, like, the, the things that are just, like, plainly ridiculous when you think about them for five seconds is that yeah. I find that those further diminish credibility when basically having the idea that public health officials are really just, like, calling, uh, no pun intended, like, balls and strikes the best they no. can. Like, uh, it's just like so stupid from a actually trying to move the needle in a more positive direction here. And I, I do think the tide is turning, not b- besides like the fact that the regulations are almost gone. I, and I live in like a very liberal part of Manhattan. Like I am very much like of the cosmopolitan whatsoever 
however you want to put it. And I don't yeah. know anyone who actually thinks this stuff is a good idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. Just felt good to rant. No, no. I think we're probably in agreement on all of these things. And also think a lot of the people who are reflexively anti-vax aren't going about it logically. But um, I, I don't like the appeals to authority and I don't like the dismissal of the populace and the public on these matters and this just trust the experts. yeah and the, the like I, segregation no yeah i don't like that and also how a lot of the policies are insane also how a lot of let's face it the public health officials are utter mediocrities with no actual expertise and yet they, they assume a dictatorial level of control um and i think back to richard Feynman, uh one of the most brilliant physicists ever who demonstrated uh, the theoretical great complexity of how the Challenger mission went disastrously. And he demonstrated it with a paper cup in a press conference. And he would explain, if you cannot explain something simply, then you do not understand it. So when these policies that make no sense are just being defended as trust the experts, trust the experts, I think there's a demand on experts that should be made that they actually explain what they're doing and why. Uh, I, I think that there's a bluff that should be called there. If it's a lot of do this and do that without an explanation of why. Uh, and what beyond the what bad, could they yeah. do, though, if in this like hypothetical future pandemic that is much more severe and everyone does need the vaccine for, what on earth could they do to convince these people to take it? I don't know. I think yeah, it's just going to be determined by like the charitable interpretation of some of the uh, like more drastic measures, um, which uh, to your point, Ethan, like they really were trying to like do everything to for- force you except the name. Um, like I, I think the charitable interpretation is that like what else was the right. Um, but I also think that it's kind of a longer game than that. Um, that a lot of the credibility might have been blown up before then. And it, I I think too, like it it was just hard when you look at the risk profile of COVID and how it was like, there was a kind of like a willful uh, attempt to just like not speak out loud that it was mainly old people. And yeah. Yeah. I think that's a funny thing that happens that in order to emphasize um the common goal we might have in fighting a disease we pretend that it's common in its nature and this might be controversial to bring up but you could analogize that a bit to uh, the aids crisis of the 1980s and 90s where the public health establishment was really trying to hammer home the idea that this can happen to everybody uh, yes it can it, it can but it was certainly disproportionately by an order of magnitude impacting gay men but it seemed like to get more people on board with fighting it, they there there was this uh, impetus to say it's it's happening to everybody. Generally, I just think honesty is the best policy. I'm a simple I'm a simple creature that way, um, and it should be employed because, as you're saying, we might have another pandemic down the road, and now we've squandered so much credibility misleading people to try to nudge them into doing whatever we thought was the right idea in the moment. So uh, great stuff, Nick. Um, I think what I want to do, we'll get around. Eventually we'll test out Donald. We'll test out Donald eventually, but I think I see Scott and then the Avi you're seeing warrior shirts. And so to me, Ryan, that means we should talk a little bit, a uh, little bit warriors media scuttlebutt 
and then maybe take a question from Scott. How does that sound? Let's do it. Okay, so let's see if I can do the expository here. Uh, Draymond Green returned to the Warriors after months away with injury. Um, it was a big old emotional moment. It was something like, what, uh, over a 1,000 days, a 1,005 days since the Warriors' core had all played together. Uh, Draymond made some good plays. And in the press conference, he seemed livid at a one reporter in particular uh, for a certain level of reporting, as NBA players do. He invoked that he has a family. He made some intriguing points about how he's in media now, and so he understands the other side of it, but nevertheless was attacking this reporter. I think it, we all know that he was angry at Anthony Slater of The Athletic, um, and Slater uh, was talking about Draymond's distance from the team and how after his birthday, he was not there. He was uh, sick officially and made a mention of, uh, you could check out the Instagram, his Instagram of his birthday to maybe see why. That is, uh, appears to have raised the hackles of Draymond. And uh, I am compromised. Who among us hasn't had one too many cocktails on our birthday? Who among us, right? Who among us? And who among us has not had... Uh, uh, a Warriors player publicly angry at them. Well, Ryan, but not, not, yeah, I'm in the other category. And I'm further compromised on this, uh, as I said, when somebody wanted me to talk about it, because I am going on a mini vacation with Anthony, uh, Anthony Slater later this week. So if I really uh, took the blowtorch to him, it would be an awkward drive, I think. But <laughs> I just want to put all the cards out on the table. Uh, but I do have some insights into it, and I think it becomes this media conversation and did the media overstep. But often the media is just a proxy for the gods fighting. And if you're around that team, if you know what's up, you know that Anthony Slater is very plugged in to the Warriors coaching staff, very plugged in to the Warriors NBA ops. And if he is conveying that information, it is not just coming from him pulling it out of the ether, it's likely coming from coaches and people in management who are frustrated with Draymond. And so Draymond... Wait, I so they were mad that he wasn't on the bench when he wasn't playing? Um, I think, I I mean, I, I don't... What were they mad at? Were they mad at that specifically? I'm not sure. But I think that there has been a little bit of distance between Draymond and between team... Draymond is already um, starting a successful media career while he's playing for them. So I'm sure there's more story there. So I would say if you're doing some some media literacy when it comes to the Golden State Warriors, uh, it's easy to get distracted. That's how I felt when Kevin Durant uh, got mad at me. I felt like uh, this is all a distraction from how he wants to leave. And it's going to become, was I bad for saying such and such? But it's just his way of distracting from the thing that's a little bit uncomfortable and relevant to the team dynamics. That's my feeling when I see something like this, but I know there's another side of it. I know Draymond probably has a point about not wanting his Instagram or his personal activities commented on. So well, he shared it. It's not like it that was is like the thing. And- that is the thing. I mean, I'm, I'm also tipped to this. I'm still compromised so many different ways. Cause I once wrote a Draymond green profile for ESPN, the magazine that I look at with some regret. Not that it's a bad story, but I felt like it was too personal and it wasn't a story where I was driving the action. It was a story where I felt like I was being pressured by my bosses to make it juicy as possible. So 
I'm just compromised all around, Ryan. You're the only one here who can give an objective take, and then we'll take Scott's question. So this is a little bit boring derivative and not to do with the media dynamics, but um, don't you think that it would be um, a little bit, you know, controlling of the Warriors to be so upset about, like, this, like, alleged distance because he was hurt, and before he was hurt, he was playing really well. Like, he, um, they, they have, they've exceeded expectations this year. Before he got hurt, he was the odds-on favorite to win Defensive Player of the Year. He fought to get back from the injury. Like, these injuries are, like, really painful. Is it? Does it matter if he's distant from the team if when it is his responsibility to be a part of the team that he's performing at an excellent level? I think that would be his perspective on it. And um, you wonder, you wonder what more might come out. And Draymond's savvy, so maybe he anticipates that more will come out and he's just trying to send a brushback pitch Slater's way. Um, it's, it's tricky. It's similar, similar to Kyrie's situation, perhaps where you are so dependent on this guy that he has some leeway to handle things. However, he wants to handle things and the way he wants to handle things might not be a way that you think is best for team cohesion, but what are you going to do? He's irreplaceable. You cannot just go on out there in the market and find another Draymond Green who has years of knowledge playing within the Warriors system and who just seems to turn Steph Curry into a superhero. Uh, but we, we will see it play, off, uh, play out. I mean, as they say on podcasts, on every podcast like this, it will be interesting to see. Oh. But <laughs> I do have one media angle, and I think I've made a variation of this before. That does, when he, when he has, uh, um, when he goes on a rant like that, and everyone knows he's talking about Anthony Slater, who reported something that, inconveniently probably was true it's just like you know giving enormous like boost to his stock in terms of like employment possibilities not that he's like not doing well or anything already he's already doing he already has a great career but when, when you're a player and you go after a media member who dared um report something like that the sky is blue um, you, you're really helping them as an athlete. Oh, this is your this is your take that you think Slater that Slater needs to uh, receive a promotion, or why hasn't Slater gone national? As you conveyed to me in private, and again, I'm not trying to pump up my well, buddy. But that I was your I take. I thought that, but I don't know how many better jobs there actually are right now than what he actually already has. Um, yeah, because it's it's weird because um, five years ago. Bleacher Report was really going after people and helping, like, even if they didn't go there, helping them get enormous salaries from where, like, places that were scared of losing them to Bleacher Report. Now, Athletic is consolidated into New York Times, so maybe he can become, like, the national NBA writer at the Times, but it's really just moving within the same company. Um, At ESPN... It's definitely an exposure bump, but 
you lose some of the um, creative equity that you might yeah. have at a shop like the athletic. And so, and, and I've already publicly declared him a, as a friend of mine and who will he be working with at, at ESPN NBA? Uh, <laughs> what Adrian Wojnarowski, that might not be the best of circumstances. Oh, I, I said it nice. I said creative equity nicely. And so ah, yes. um, the, the, I, I guess there, he, he kind of, there's not really uh, a stepping stone of advancement that makes like, you know, immediate sense off the top of my head, which is like a little bit of a weird thing to say other than maybe creating his own sub stack. But even so that would help him do that. Yeah. Creating your own sub stack. I think I have the best job in media. That's, that's my personal biased opinion, but the Warriors are an economic engine for the athletic. They are profitable. And if you're part of that team, you're likely, and I don't know his salary, but you're likely being paid very well compared to the rest of media just because it's it's an immense advantage for the athletic. They came in there. They took the relevant uh, Warriors reporters into their fold. They just crushed the newspaper competition in getting Slater and Marcus Thompson and Tim Kawakami. And so I think that's a that's a pretty, pretty damn good job right there. I don't know. I don't know why you would want to try to move off it right now with the Warriors, at least uh, as good as they are. So let's take a question from theoretical Warriors fan, Scott. Pull him up to the floor. Hey, guys. Uh, Hey. This, actually, this used to be the Scott with the the baby in his abbey. I know. Oh, I, I put the two together. Yeah. So. The Scott who was <laughs> on the lookout for out. me and and noticed <laughs> that I totally scheduled this call in wrong for nine forty five a.m. because uh, I'm an idiot. So thank you for that, Scott. No problem. Yeah, I guess. Well, first off, hard for me to pick sides. Big fan of both Draymond and Slater. Um, like extemporaneously, like I, it's hard for me to think of writers who like bridge the gap between actual like real basketball analysis and being plugged into the team like i it's, there really aren't that many out there so Later's big good. fan of him um i guess like two topics i was thinking about y'all can pick which one you want to go with but one with the kind of the west brick and naomi osaka uh events recently like do you see any trending toward this happening more sympathy although i didn't actually see as much sympathy toward osaka mm-hmm. um Ooh, i might get I had was... oh sorry I... go ahead no i might i might uh, squander a take i was thinking of writing Ooh. but i think we're about to just enter a generation of this i think this is yeah. the zoomer athlete i think that and i say it with sympathy i think that there is a generation that has grown up with so many of their interactions mediated through this unhealthy medium of social media uh it does not inspire the healthiest of coping mechanisms it's quite maladaptive and so we're seeing this younger generation of people in their 20s maybe you could say Kyrie Irving uh but you could say Osaka you could look at Simone Biles uh bowing out for instance um and it, it, it might it might be generational and if it's generational and it has something to do with the technology then it's not going away anytime soon. I think to what you're saying, what might change is just the way it's received as the public gets tired of it. Yep. I think that makes sense. Cause I, yeah, like the West West brick thing was the consensus was like, Hey, like you shouldn't, 
uh, threaten his family, but the guy kind of brought a lot of this criticism on himself, and that seems, you know, His family fair. wasn't threatened. They were just making <laughs> fun of his name. Yeah, exactly. But that, and I feel like, but that became the, the default uh, qualifier everyone had to uh, add in, right? It was like, well, I, that's not okay, but, you know, like, um, but yeah. I, I do well, what, what was your other question? The other question was, so let's fast forward, say, five years from now, LeBron's retired. And you have a you lot sure of sure about that. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how Bronny's career is doing. The Logan um, Roy of NBA players is what I <laughs> exactly. see. What you were saying. Exactly. Um, so what do like in terms of kind of clutch media personnel, Kendrick Perkins, Richard Jefferson, do they start puffing up other clutch clientele? And that's, you know, a benefit of signing with clutch is that you get all this positive media coverage mm-hmm. today like where do you think it goes from here in it, terms it's of unclear of the, because yeah. i think that rich paul and lebron will be involved in team ownership somewhere mm-hmm. and yeah. so we'll have to see what happens with the clutch uta consortium it's yeah totally unknowable i unknowable i think that in a way it's its own uh, leviathan at this point that should be able to sustain after LeBron's career, but this is part of what these agencies are doing. I hear from journalists who say, hey, this agency is courting me and trying to sign up with me because they've perceived the market inefficiency here of being able to dictate coverage because it's obvious. A lot of ESPN's NBA coverage is heavily influenced by what agencies these players with. Good luck finding a lot of examples of them going after CAA repped players. That's quite the advantage if you're signing with CAA. Nobody puts it out there. But if I'm a player and I'm looking around and I'm going, hey, you're telling me I can sign with an agency that is going to uh, inspire many people on the biggest sports network to just either kid gloves me when I when I screw up or completely trumpet me when I'm doing well. Well, that's something the other agencies can't necessarily provide. So I think the agencies are trying to get into that game via the uh, quote-unquote journalists, and that's a dirty aspect, but it just makes sense that it's moving in that direction. Makes sense. And I guess, you know, no need to speculate, but how, like in terms of Perkins, Jefferson, like why do you think, or how do you think they are, I don't know if compensated is the right word, but like, Mm. Like, like, how does this actually work out in the nitty gritty? Like, are they to getting, be you fair know, to flights and dinners? He was very critical of Ben Simmons. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, and I and I think you know, I I kind of, I'm not a hater on Perkins and Richard yeah. Jefferson. I kind of like them together. I think they're a good dynamic together. I think the issue is they're just not going to be Turner. Who can be to have Chuck and Shaq and Ernie and Kenny? I mean, you can't you can't really go up against that and win. So. I'm not too critical. I'm not too critical of them. And uh, I think there's more wiggle room. It almost seems this is just me thinking off the top of my head. There's more freedom, it seems, in criticizing the players, regardless of agency, for the TV guys than for the, uh, the people writing. Well, I mean, it was, it was Skip that Westbrook got really mad at. Are you cleaning your garage in the background, Ryan? What you know, is that? I'm taking my old dog out to pee because he's <laughs> threatening to bark. 
<laughs> okay, well, uh, that's that's a necessary thing to do. Uh, Scott, great questions as always. Thanks, I think guys. we're going to move on to winning time and specifically the portrayal of uh, one Jerry West. And uh, if anybody has thoughts on that, uh, I I forced poor Ryan to watch winning time today so he could formulate a take on this. Um, Mark Stein of Substack wrote a defense of Jerry West based on the Adam McKay product, the Adam McKay product that is based on the uh, Jeff Perlman book about the 1980s Lakers. And a lot of people are picking up on how Jerry West is portrayed. Um, and it, it's interesting that it's become such a, such a thing. And my immediate reaction as somebody who didn't know Jerry West well, but has had interactions with Jerry West, has interviewed Jerry West. That guy is fucking cool. That guy, you watch him walk in the summer league, he's the fucking man. Even when he's older, I, I, even just a few years ago, he's bending everybody's ear. He's got a charisma and he's got a cachet. And so it's odd to see that juxtaposed against this weird sort of sad sack, constant rageaholic. I think we all know that Jerry West has his depressive moments, that he's a competitive maniac, but it just... The, the portrayal is not the portrayal of an NBA legend and greatest general manager of all time. Are we, Ryan, perhaps overreacting to what's happening at the beginning of the show and there's a redemption arc? Uh, or is there something more here and people are reacting genuinely to a miscarriage of fictionalized, not fictionalized, a historical fiction? Well, it's being presented as being real. It's based on the Jeff Perlman book. Jeff Perlman has had a very successful career as an author. He's written a book about the 86 Mets. He's written a book about Brett Favre. He's written a book about the 90s Cowboys and so on. And so his reporting is um, supposed to be taken as fact. And this show is based on his reporting. So, I mean, you know, it's not a documentary, so obviously there's going to be some liberties taken. I read the book like six or seven years ago, and I actually had his first interview promoting the book at The Big Weed, but I don't remember how he portrayed West in the book. Mm. We'll have to see how the show progresses with him, although I don't know that I'm necessarily going to watch it religiously after sampling an episode, but um, it, it does portray West as just this, like, child who broke his MVP trophy in a tantrum because he wanted Sidney Moncrief instead of Magic Johnson, which I think we've known historically has been like an old take exposed. And he he really doesn't there's not a lot of depth to his character through like 1.25 episodes he just looks like a petulant toddler yeah uh i would say the same um if it doesn't improve i would have to wonder because uh, a subplot that's intriguing perhaps worth writing about is the ugly divorce between jerry west and the lakers and whether it's Perlman, whether it's the people making this show based on Perlman's work, somebody is trying to get the goods on what, what happened in Lakertown. And many of the people in there 
I think at this point have some issue with Jerry West. So well, is you that know, a, um, yeah. the the Lakers are and the NBA are distancing themselves from this show. They think that it's like Satan and they're refusing to promote it. And Magic is saying like Magic is kind of taking the same. Do you remember um, Perlman wrote a book about Walter Payton that his family was disgusted by and Michael Wilbon, who we spoke about at the beginning of the show, went on a very similar rant that he went on Kyrie Irving about that book um, because it, it talked about some of the like warts in Walter Payton's personal life. But um, it, I don't think that these um, this portrayal in the TV show would have been planted by the Lakers who hate no. it. But no, but aside, somebody they, they're talking to. It's always been a leaky boat over there. I guess is what I'm saying. And hey, I don't know who they're talking to, but I think you know. Here's one thing that I think about sometimes. This is a deep cut. I'd be surprised if anybody listening knows who this is. But uh, John Black the Raymond Ritter of the Lakers for so many years who was ousted by the genie bus takeover. For instance, if you were talking to him, you wouldn't be talking to the Lakers, but you'd be talking to somebody who knows where so many bodies are buried. So uh, I, I just point that out to say that there's somebody that you could be talking to regardless of whether there's an official connection. Yeah. And um, going, if you're, if you're going to cover this, um, you know, Stephen A did a radio interview a few years ago where he purported to like explain what the um, genesis of the rift between uh, the Lakers and Jerry West was, as he told it. And I wrote about this at big weed a few years ago, because Stephen A went on um, George Sedano's ESPN LA show and talked about it. He said that um, Jerry Buss promised West, I think it was like a $1 million bonus, but I don't, it was some, seven-figure, eight-figure bonus if he landed Shaq on the Lakers when Shaq was on the Magic, which mm. um, Wes succeeded in doing. And then Dr. Buss allegedly like dragged his feet on paying out this bonus. He eventually did pay it out, but because he had like initially reneged or whatever, this was like what caused like the just intense bitterness in Jerry West that has endured for 20 years now. Yeah. Um, and seems to have come to a head. So I wonder if that's informing what we're getting. My position on winning time so far, I don't think it's good. And yet I feel like I'll watch every episode. That's my, <laughs> that's my, that's position. how they get you. But I don't, I'm not, I don't do that. If I don't like something, I just quit. Usually that's my rule as well, but I am too intrigued by how they're going to do this. Um, I want to force Tim Kawakami to watch it because he knows Jerry West very well. But uh, sources say that Tim Tim has not watched this. Let's take a question from Nicholas. <laughs> uh, Nicholas, Nicholas, Nicholas on the landline. Let's Hello. try Donald. Oh, there's Nicholas. Never mind. Ah, I was loyal to Nicholas. You were just going to Hello. Cast How's it going? Hey, Nicholas. How you doing? Look, this question is so off topic, but I've been meaning to ask it for a while. And I'm just into the call. I'm so. How? How would you get rid of him? How oh, do you replace Nicholas, we didn't the quite commissioner? Hear that. Can you give him anything? Nicholas, Adam start Silver. over. 
Okay. Good of him. How do you get a separate commissioner in, given that, you know, Hmm. Can you type your question? Yeah, Nicholas, can you type your question? I'm very curious. Right now, it's almost like a mad. I think your question is, what do you think of Adam Silver? Um, no, no, I, no. How much time do we have? No. <laughs> no. Okay. Can you hear me now? Sorry about that. that fucking yes. Up. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. The question was, how do you get rid of Adam Silver? Ah. What process is there to remove him as the commissioner? Could all the owners be like, actually, fuck this guy in his plow, player empowerment era. This isn't working for us. We need to get a different person in there. Like, how, what does that process look like? But I think pretty much the, as you just described. Yes, <laughs> but no, it's it's a great question. What's the because, temperature on that though? How do how do the owners feel about it? Yeah, it's a great question though because I have never gone to the nitty gritty of how the vote must happen and how it's ratified. Just because I've never perceived him to be that much under threat, I think in part because Adam Silver. Uh, is their mouthpiece in many ways. This is what they wanted. Uh, this is what the new money owners wanted. They didn't like how David Stern would push them around and yell at them and act like he was their boss. They wanted a guy who was pliable. Now, that guy has the unenviable task of trying to be pliable towards ownership and towards the players, but I, I think that Silver has in many ways run the plays they told him to run, and I... I don't love the silver era. I think that there's a loss of patience for it among many, but I just don't perceive it as has having achieved the critical mass that would cause them to force him out. I think what will happen is they'll get through this TV deal, which they should probably be signing within 12 to 18 months. Yeah. And then after that, we might hear rumblings. Oh, I'm thinking about retiring in a year or two, and it's kind of like a five-year lengthy process. Yeah, it's it's he's not riding high. There was a moment where it was rumored that he might be called on to take over the NFL. Uh, those days are beyond us. Um, I think that there's a recognition that perhaps this thing has not gone as well as many had hoped. And so, yeah, I think, it, 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 right now, there there are people frustrated, but at the very least, Adam Silver is still perceived as intelligent, as competent. It just seems like he has been Peter principled, in my opinion. As a it, it's been a it's been a come down from the NBA bubble yeah. when he was really the first sport back, and they figured out how to like live without COVID for a few months, but it, where, where it really, you know, I think the turning point for him was the Bucks walking off the court in the wake of that Kenosha shooting. I think everything since then has gone poorly for the NBA. That's what about Omicron though? They did a pretty good job of keeping the league going when all those cases were spiking though, right? Yeah, but so did the NFL. Like yeah, the NFL you know, got out ahead of that before the NBA. I wrote that so the NBA perf- should get ahead, but so it seems like performance it. is often benchmark against the performance of other leagues in that respect. It's not yeah. just about what you're doing in your league. It's well, you, you're doing well with the NBA, but look at the NFL over there, though. Yeah. That seems like a thing. All right. Well, five years ago, the the 
the like consensus media narrative was that they were on a convergence path and they've only gone in total opposite directions since then. Yeah. And why have they gone in total opposite directions? I would argue it's because they listened too much to the very media that was pumping them up uh, and cheering them (laughs) on because they had become the singularity with Twitter the uh, worst medium in the world. Uh, okay, great question. Let's take a question from our, our guy, JF, out in Canada. Make him next caller. I feel bad for avoiding Donald. We'll come back to Donald and see if he's a real person after this. But JF. Yeah, what's up? Yeah, and, and uh, to that point, it's really the sports commissioner is the safest, safest job in sports because you mm. have 30 bosses, right? Like generally, you know, one of us can be, well, not you, Ethan, but – uh, fired by a single individual or, you know, maybe two, but, uh, you know, to convince 30 people on to agree to something is really difficult. That's why there's so little turnover. And, you know, I used to be a hockey fan and I don't think Batman has been a good job, but, uh, just of the structure of, you know, how he reports to these, all these owners, he's just not going anywhere. And same, I think could have been said for Goodell as well. Uh, you know, he had yeah. some pretty low periods. Uh, Definitely. And, and I do want to, uh, you know, somebody brought up Bomani Jones and uh, Anthony Slater. I think ESPN's big problem is that they have too many Bomani Jones and not enough Anthony Slater. I think, you know, Bomani is great and, you know, as an individual. But, you know, when you have an entire roster of people who behave and think like him uh, for you know, the worldwide leader in sports uh, information, it becomes problematic for that audience that are tuning in to sports and not, uh, you know, social commentary on, you know, the athletes in those sports. And I, I think, you know, <clears throat> Anthony does an amazing job of, you know, making the game interesting and, you know, reporting on stories that, uh, you know, pe- readers and, you know, viewers want to hear about, not, you know, so much about, uh, you know, kind of, certain social dynamics. Uh, I might be protecting Bomani, but I actually think that their problem is more of the people who went to Yale, people went to Harvard. Yes. God, I love, I love Pablo. I love Pablo Torre. So I'm not taking, they're all great as individuals. It just, there's too many. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of Ivy leaguers. And then it becomes, it's good. I, I think Bomani, for instance, understands the culture of the locker room. Right. Mm -hmm. I think he gets it. There are other people at that institution that do not and are constantly lecturing and just seem to be doing it from a perspective of no on the ground knowledge. And then when the, the John Gruden thing happens, for instance, or I don't know any sort of player controversy, there isn't an there isn't an understanding that the culture behind the scenes is absolutely not what you would find in corporate America. And that's, that's just one observation I've made that. No, I, I totally agree with that observation because like you said, I think the former kind of talking heads on ESPN were these beat reporters who became colonists, colonists that became these ESPN talking heads. Right. So they didn't have these obviously like backgrounds. Uh, of course, you know, the status that comes with being on TV and ESPN and probably the big salaries start drawing all these obviously people, people in uh into the fold which they couldn't resist from hiring and i, I you know i'm re- reading a profile of bomani saying that he was solving sudoku uh puzzles while doing his radio show and you know he was obviously very uh you know clearly signaling that you know sports chatter is way beneath him intellectually right that i have to do this other thing 
that, you know, works my brain. And, you know, I thought it was just so offensive to the audience and, uh, you know, right. And, Cause it's offensive to anybody who would like walk to Bristol, yes. Connecticut and live <laughs> in like a courtyard by Marriott five nights a week to have that job. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And I'm just, I'm envisioning mad dog saying that and laughing to myself, but continue. And, and that's exactly why, like he's been successful with, I think in this reemergence on like first take, right. Is he's actually somebody interested in passionate about it. Same with. Steven, yeah. He, right? he, he thinks like the top 10 quarterbacks in the NFL is like a vitally important. Guy. Yeah. Yes. He comes down with the, the top 10 yes. quarterbacks. Like it's uh, Moses bringing the 10 commandments. It, and it, that is, that is something the commitment is something that this is where I would relate to a Bomani and maybe why I set up the sub stack exactly. because I can't, I can't do that. I can't take sports that, that seriously. After a while you, you leave your twenties or a lot of us do, and we might enjoy the game, but we're not living and dying with who wins it. But these guys who go into middle age, seemingly really giving a shit about mm-hmm. top 10 quarterbacks, the commitment And those level. are the ones who have longevity, though. Francesco, yeah, Russo, Stephen A., Skip, and, like... And, and yeah. those, are the, those are the people who are watching ESPN want to see, right? Like, that's what that's the type of conversation you want to hear. You don't want to, uh, to insert some sort of uh, racial spin or, you know, some social dynamic, you know, to put intellectual heft on a sports topic, right? It's just yep. not what you want when you're turning into... Uh, ESPN midday, right? It's like the last thing. Like, what are you doing midday programming and in hearing this? Getting and of course, all this lecturing and finger waving. It's not uh, public service. It's totally self service, right? It's hmm. me telling you know the world that you know I'm a better person than you, or you know, you know this is what I really care about, not this inane. Well, well, stuff. you know who should send them a fruit basket is Dave Portnoy and Clay Travis because of ESPN. Yeah didn't go in that direction they wouldn't have nearly the opportunity that they did absolutely yeah. you're they, spot on and and one quick question before i leave because on sure. uh jerry west uh you know why did he leave the warriors this is like very you know sports radio topic but obviously the fan base got very angry with the decisions they're making post his uh exit and you know i think they're giving a lot of credit to him kind of building uh the warriors dynasty yeah, well, he had a negative opinion on Alan Smilagich, and no, I'm just joking. Um, he, uh, I, I think it was just overpayment. I think that the Warriors can be cheap, a little cheap behind the scenes. They, they had perceived themselves as having, as venture capitalists, secured the the talent in these players, uh, Kevin Durant and everybody else. And so I think after that point. Uh, why do we have to pay everybody? Why do we have to pay Sammy Geltham with the stats? Why do we need Chelsea Lane? I know they would they would bristle at the characterization, but I believe it was overpayment. I'm sure he's a rascal behind the scenes. I'm sure he's got an ego, and that all was part of it. But that's that's to the best of my recollection. I quoted it in my book. I I didn't have a cold. Mark Stein, I believe, wrote about it in the New York Times. But to my the best of my recollection, it was payment. Donald, are you there? Oh yeah, Ryan is fascinated by Donald. Let's see if Donald exists. I'm also fascinated by Girl Boss. I want to get to that. I'm fascinated by both. Their last two callers, Donald, are you there? I'm here. Yes. Whoa, Donald, you exist. I'm a real person. I'm a real wow. person, just an anonymous dude from Central New York. I love it. I love it. So what's <laughs> up, Donald? 
Well, there's a lot of topics, you know. So just to jump in, uh, two two points about Adam Silver. You know, maybe it's a harder job now, but I think David Stern was kind of like the, he set a really high bar. I'd say he's to the NBA what Pete Rozelle was to the NFL. He just yeah. really brought it into, uh, you know, prominence more than it was, and uh, it's a hard act to follow. And maybe it's a difficult job for Adam Silver compared comparatively, but. I don't know how you can never be as good as David Sir. He, I think he was a gold standard for and per, it, it, just a force of nature, personality-wise, which M. Silver doesn't yeah. have. And another gripe I have: second episode of Winning Time, the uh, David Stern. Not, I, I I looked at that not to be arrogant. I thought I could do a better David Stern than this guy. <laughs> you gotta have some oomph with your David Stern. The the yeah. um, John C. Riley as Jerry Buss is the only really. Um, compelling acting. Oh, Ma- the Magic Johnson, Magic Johnson actor is pretty good. I would say. I, I would. I would say that one's also. That's a thing. Those two. Those two are. The oh ones no, we lost for. Girl Boss. Oh, we lost Girl Boss. It's okay, Donald. Donald, you'll make up for the void. Hopefully. I mean, do you have any uh, any questions? Anything else? Or uh, you well, know. let me mention two things. Talk about Draymond or anyone who's injured for that long. You think about it. Assuming he comes back close to one hundred percent. He's going to be rested. Now, that doesn't mean, that, you know, guys don't have another uh, level of play in the playoffs, but they're banged up. They're beat up. Draymond's going to be very well rested. So, you know, if he comes back from his injury 100%, they're going to be a tough team to beat, I think. I mean, they're just so good. I'm glad we took Donald's call. I'm feeling good vibes, Ryan. This feels like we're doing New York area radio <laughs> just with the voice alone, yeah, Donald. The, um <laughs> I mean, yeah, Kyrie, as Ethan said privately, is going to have fresh legs too um, in the playoffs. The market inefficiency is uh, conscientiously objecting uh, to vaccine mandates, it would seem. Um, And hey, that is the load management that it's taken to an extreme. It is interesting to watch Kyrie so brilliant because it's assumed that you're going to lose your fastball if you're away that long, but maybe we have severely overestimated how much basketball you need to play to still be a peak form and the few and far between model that Kyrie Irving has been forced into. I mean, my, my God, he looks, what if, he looks yeah, absolutely what, incredible. Like, what if this was a model for if they played 30 and a 35 game NBA season that like everybody would be performing in a much more entertaining manner. I think they would. I think they would. Yeah. I watch Australian League and the energy is better. They have one or two games a week and it's just everything's heightened. And maybe one of my issues when it comes to basketball is I think it's the best sport, but it's managed so poorly. And they, I think, again, it's such a great product. But if you just were able to build some scarcity and you were able to get the players a bit more rested and make the games more of an event, um, it would make it go up a level, an order of magnitude, as I like to say. And maybe it would compete with football like so many absolutely insane media members believed in 2015, (laughs) 2016. Probably not, but a guy can dream. Can we talk real quick about the, um, the Harden partying stuff? Yes. Donald, you're going to be on with us as we talk about uh, Harden and partying, and then we'll close this sucker out. So, Ryan, what's your yeah, take? Yeah. Well, uh, as far it, as Harden, you know, oh, 
Oh, go ahead, Donald. You go, and then I'll no, go. I was going to bring it back to the Sixers because I'm a Philly fan. I grew up in Philadelphia as a kid. So that's I was about to say, your voice, your voice betrays that. Your accent betrays that. Continue. Oh, really? It's still there a little bit, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So, so yeah, I'm a Philly boy, you know, uh, ultimately. But uh, so Harden, I wasn't thrilled, you know, because he's kind of a all-about-me kind of guy. But I was wrong, pleasantly surprised. He is such a team guy. And it was, a, you know, obviously he's a great talent. But to go from where the Philly was, which is close to being a real contender, he's really going to be a, a, a missing piece. I don't know about the party. I don't know about that. But he's really trying to do what he can to make the team better and not just himself. Like I watched Steph Curry. The so other did, night. did you not see the story um, that what happened after like he went three for seventeen and they lost by like forty eight points, not forty eight, but a lot of points to the Nets last week. Oh, and it was after a party night. Okay, I take it no, off. No, back. it he was saw. so no. he, he had that terrible performance, and then he went out partying with two rappers, Travis Scott and Lil Baby. Who, in my research, I realized he's been friends with them for like a number of years. But I love, I love this is like a, your focus grouping, Ryan, because you, you I had did props. See that. I did see that, and frankly, <laughs> in my own personal opinion, anybody that hangs out with Travis Scott. Is got a low character because the guy let 10 people die. That's just my opinion. He knew it was bad. He's known for having violence at his shit. And he thought it was going to be great because, oh, wow, violence. So I think he's evil, Travis Scott. Okay, I really do. So anybody wants to hang out with him, I got a low opinion. He's got a quick turn on Harden in these last few minutes. Well, no, oh. I mean I'm still gonna I'm still gonna root for Philly. I'm not I'm not that fickle, you know. But no, I don't appreciate no that, one can you know? be. But um <laughs> I you know, it, you can't if you're going to go out, can you just be like no cameras? You know, mm. it, it's you. That's not the. So there's three cities in America where you really can't do that in. It's Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. And those right. are places where all you have to do, you don't even have to win. If you win, that's great. You have to show that you want to win and that it matters to you as much as it matters to the fans. And that's not a place where you can go like that, that game against the Nets, people paid a lot of money to go to it. You can't shoot three for 17, lose by 30 points and then be out like celebrating with rappers and sparklers. Like it's just I, yeah, it's totally incredible. Well, in public with cameras, I, if you want to do it quietly with your family because you want to, you know, forget about that's one thing. But to do it all publicly like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Well, this um, this this goes this goes back and, and and thanks so much, Donald. Um, this goes back to this thing, and maybe we can relate it a little bit to the Kyrie, but I don't think that the players feel they owe anybody anything. And in the case of Kyrie, I find it sort of amusing. I find it useful, as I said at the beginning, uh, when it comes to shining a light on various absurdities in politics. But I think as a general trend, it's maybe not the best that players feel just not a part of building the the sport or the brand or making fans think that there's any responsibility towards them. And that's what you're seeing a lot of, and it's expressing itself. I mean, James Harden, you can say that you shouldn't do that if you want to endear yourself to the Philly fans, but I don't know if James Harden gives a shit. And if he doesn't give a shit, then he doesn't give a shit, and he's going to go out and he's going to do that. So, Well, if he doesn't, yeah. 
it's not going to end well for him there. <laughs> yes, the famously forgiving uh, Philadelphia uh, fan community, um, it might not go so great. But And no calls from Yu Yang and Yosarian tonight. I'm sorry we bored you tonight, guys. Oh, hey, it's, it's, well, we got a quick, okay, should we take this final call? Should Let's we take do this? it. Let's okay. do it. I got my energy. Okay, okay. We got a little variety from the callers. Adam with the Godfather Avi. Are you there? Oh, good, good pickup, Ethan. Yeah, I just um I just wanted to touch on what you just said because I've been I've been kicking around this idea in my head lately about uh about being connected to the stakes of the whole endeavor rather than the individual. Mm, yeah. And uh and thinking about, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me when I was watching The Last Dance was as big as Michael Jordan was, he still kind of had this ethic about him where he, he he recognized that the bulls were who he worked for and jerry reinsdorf was his boss and even though at some level he was more powerful even than lebron is now or at his peak he yeah. still kind of recognized that like he was part of building something and you know maybe that documentary was a little hagia hagiographic but I just I, I I think that's an underrated part of no, his appeal he, in building the sport. He viewed himself as an ambassador of the sport. I don't exactly. think the guys who have followed do, and in part they don't because he built the sport to such a degree that it operates with a certain level of decadence. It's hard for people who are making over forty million dollars a year to think they're the junior partner in an upstart league that they need to help get somewhere, right? Um, so that's the nature of it and then you add all the technologies that have amplified people's narcissism and they've made us all more narcissistic and you scale it up when you're a celebrity and it's created this situation where again hey i i could understand russell westbrook not enjoying being criticized but he doesn't seem to have any sense of reciprocity and any sense of making fans feel better or owing anything to the fans and it's that lack of reciprocity that i think is a late motif of the nba's decline in terms of domestic viewership and domestic fandom how one fixes it uh easier said than done especially since as i said i think part of the problem is technological in nature it's also kind of odd when you think about it that the former players who as you said built so much of the sports popularity don't share in any of the equity of the insane tv deals and therefore contracts that exist now like it's been like a huge big thing to even get like health insurance for like the dozen or so aba players who need it it's just it's really wild that this current generation is the beneficiaries of all these people, but there's not any like gratitude for it. And they don't, the people who did build it don't get to share in it at all. Yeah. Uh, I guess they get the health care uh, from the NBA, NBA PA uh, or MBPA that uh, a few players <laughs> worked a scam out of, which was uh, an amusing and crazy story, but you're right. They don't necessarily share in it. Michael Jordan built his own empire where he could share in it, and he makes more money every year than he ever did playing for the Bulls. But for the most part, uh, these guys are the beneficiaries, and they make way more than the players before them who built it, which isn't typically how it works in, let's say, Silicon Valley, where the founders uh, get the most money and have more of a stake. But anyway, hey, 
This is a great episode, Ryan. I like this episode. You know, I, I might like every episode that we do, but I especially <laughs> like this one. Thanks so much for across time zone staying up late with us. Thanks so much to all the callers. Great questions as always. Subscribe to House of Strauss. Read Ryan at the New York Post. Come back when we do more call-ins. Until next time, folks, stay safe. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Ethan. Talk next week. See ya.